please turn with me to uh, Habakkuk, the first chapter, beginning at verse 12. Let me uh, just sort of quickly orient you to where we are. This is Habakkuk's second appeal, his second prayer to God. Um, The first one is verses 2 through 4, and then God responds in verses 5 through 7, and now in verse 12 and following, he is responding again and calling out to God. And we've said that, that one of the great things about Habakkuk is that he's relentless. He doesn't quit. He doesn't give up. He keeps going back again and again and again. Now, let me just say, I recognize that it's hard, or it can be hard, to, to sort of make the transference, if you will, from where we live to where Habakkuk is. Um, this can seem like a completely different world. I don't have any friends named Habakkuk, okay? And I don't know any Chaldeans, okay? So, you know, I recognize that you have to make a tremendous shift when you come to a little book like this. A name you don't know, a a people you don't know, a culture you don't understand. It's all so alien and strange, okay? But but this is not Middle Earth, all right, for those of you who are Tolkien fans. This is not Narnia, for those of you who are Lewis fans. If you got on a time machine and you went backwards, you'd bump into Habakkuk, okay? You'd bump into him. And the thing I want to suggest to you is that there is tremendous practical counsel and advice for you and me in Habakkuk. We've been invited into Habakkuk's personal private world. We've been invited into his prayer life, if you will. And we've seen him pray honestly. We've seen him pray with understanding. We've seen him pray perseveringly, and we've seen him pray with assurance, and then we've heard God respond, and God didn't respond the way Habakkuk expected him to respond, wanted him to respond, and so the question is, what do you do now? What do you do while you're still waiting and while you're still listening? That's you. That's you. I know it's you. I'm not in your skin, but you've got skin, and your skin isn't any different from my skin. I know what it is to be a human being living in the midst of this terribly broken world, this abnormal world, and to have to watch and wait and listen and not hear what you want to hear. So what do you do? And that's where we get some help from Habakkuk. So look with me, if you will, at verse 12. And hear what Habakkuk now says as he responds to God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. 
So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing the nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and then what I will answer concerning my complaint. This is God's word for us. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this day, for this day which you have made, this day that is so, so important for us. And thank you for this, your word. I thank you that you've spoken. You've not left us in darkness. Please now use your word to help us because we need it. We need your help, O Lord, in the midst of our struggles and perplexities and questions and uncertainties. Please, Lord, help us. By your spirit, through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So here we are. We're, we're stuck with this prophet Habakkuk, delightfully so. Uh, and just to sort of have us again um, in the big picture of what is unfolding here. What Habakkuk is struggling with at this particular point is, in fact, God himself. Uh, he's struggling with God himself. Uh, he, he's looked at the world around him, and he's seen Judah, his people. And uh, he doesn't like what he sees. Um, the words that he uses to describe what he sees as he looks at Judah are up there in verses 2 through 4. Uh, rather than seeing... What, what any thoughtful, reflective person living in Judah would want to see, uh, the shalom of God, you know, the, the peace of God, the, the blessing of God, the abundance of God, the kindness of God, the mercy of God expressed in the midst of the people so that the other nations would look at the people of God and would say what they're supposed to say when they're supposed to see what they're supposed to see. That nation is different. Habakkuk looks at the people and, and instead of seeing all of that righteousness and goodness and all of the rest, he sees violence. He sees iniquity. He sees instead of tranquility and prosperity and blessedness, strife and contention and oppression and injustice. And so he cries out to God. He looks, if you will, at the condition of the church and it breaks his heart. It breaks his heart to see what he sees. And so he pleads with God and he says, God, do something. Do something. Do something again. Do something like what you've done in the past. Change things. Renew. Revive. Restore. Rebuild. Remake your people so that they are what they're supposed to be. That's what he cries out for. But what he hears what he hears from God is not what he wanted to hear. God says to him, 
in response to his prayer, I'm going to do something you would not believe even if it were told. And then he goes on to tell him. (laughs) Then he goes on to tell him that he's going to raise up this people and this people that is going to march across the land is going, according to the end of verse 12, is going to be a means of judgment, a means of discipline, a means of correction for the people of God. Now that in itself might be okay. But the people who are raised up are these Chaldeans. And Habakkuk knows a little bit about the Chaldeans, and God tells him more about the Chaldeans, and you see them described by God in verses 5 and following. And when confronted with this, now, you know, Habakkuk's struggle is not so much with what he sees around him, what he sees in the nation. Now his struggle shifts from what he sees in the nation and his struggle and his longing to see the people renewed and remade and restored Now his struggle shifts from that to God. He's struggling in a way that is similar to the way that Job struggles. With God himself. And you see the struggle in verses 13 and following. You see the things that he's struggling with as he reflects upon this. He says, you are of too pure eyes even to look upon sin. You're going to raise up a people, verse 13. You're going to raise up a people, a wicked people, who will swallow up people who are more righteous than they. Now let's interpret. Let's paraphrase what Habakkuk is saying. Look, I understand Judah is a wreck. I understand Judah is a mess. I understand Judah is characterized by violence and oppression and injustice and all of the rest. But it's Judah. It's your church. It's your people. And you're going to raise up another people more wicked than they are. And that more wicked people is going to march across the the land and devour what is more righteous than they are. That doesn't seem right. How can you, whose eyes are so pure, too pure even to look upon sin, how can you have anything to do with people who are so wicked? That's his struggle. Habakkuk is sitting in front of his television set. His 60-inch widescreen TV. And he is watching Islamic fundamentalist terrorists fly airplanes into buildings in New York City. And he is asking what everyone asks. How can you have anything to do with that? That's the question he's asking. 
That's what he's struggling with in the second chapter. Now, I want you to notice what he does. And this is where, this is where the help is, folks. In the midst of the struggle. Now, you've got to... You've got to think of this. You've got to look at this whole book, frankly, but especially these verses, 12 through 17, and then verse 1 of chapter 2. You can't look at them in a linear sort of a fashion. You have to look at them rather as a kind of a mosaic, if you will, a pastiche, all right? Things that are going on and happening in Habakkuk's mind, not sequentially, but all at the same time. You understand what I'm saying? As he struggles with that question, as he struggles with the Babylonian hordes marching across the land at one and the same time, at one and the same time, he's talking to himself. And what he says, what he does, the counsel that he's giving to himself and the counsel that I encourage you to learn from Habakkuk, you find in verses 12, And verse 1 of chapter 2. It's like you have a parenthesis here, you see? Chapter 12, or I'm sorry, verse 12 of chapter 1 and verse 1 of chapter 2, within which is all of this agonizing internal struggle. How can you, the holy God, have anything to do with evil while all that's going on? There are these other things that are going on with Habakkuk. And there are four of them, quickly. Yeah, right. Here's the first one. Here's the first one. It's implicit in verse 12. The first thing that he does is to stop and take a step back. To stop and take a step back. You see, he's moving in the direction because of his deep struggle with how a holy God can have anything to do with a thoroughly wicked and rapacious people. He's inclined... To qualify, marginalize, allow to be corrupted what he knows to be true. And it's like, it's like he says to himself, now wait a minute, Habakkuk. We need to have a conversation with ourselves." You know, there's that great scene, again, for those of you who are uh, Tolkien lovers and, and who, uh, who love the Lord of the Rings, there's that great scene in The Return of the King. It happens several times. But one, and this is a negative illustration of a positive thing, okay? But there's that great scene where Gollum, you know, the evil creature Gollum is gazing into the pond and he's having a conversation with himself, right? And he's trying to reason with himself in two directions, in the direction of evil and in the direction of good. He's a, he's a complicated creature. He's not a man. He's a civil war, Right? He's a split personality. Well, interestingly, Habakkuk does a similar thing, not in a bad way, but in a most helpful way. He stops and he takes a step back and he begins to talk to himself. He begins to talk to himself. I learned this from Martin Lloyd-Jones in a wonderful book called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures, series of sermons. Get it. It's good. And he says in the first of those sermons, 
from Psalm 42, a psalm that says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, my Lord and my God. Lloyd-Jones makes this observation. He says, you see what the psalmist does. Habakkuk's doing the same thing. The psalmist, instead of listening to himself, begins to talk to himself. You know the difference, don't you? Right? When you listen to yourself... Yourself has taken you in hand and has sought to persuade you that things you do believe and you know to be true are actually untrue and not to be believed. Is God really good? Is God really big? Is God really powerful? Is God really all-knowing? Does he really possess all of these attributes that I that I know that he possesses? Is he really righteous? Is he really just? Is he really gracious? Is he really merciful? What Lord Jones points out and what he suggests the psalmist is doing is that rather than listening to yourself, you take yourself in hand and you begin to talk to yourself. You speak to yourself. You know how that works? You preach the gospel to yourself. You tell yourself the truth. Now, look, let me just, a little parenthesis here. Let me just suggest this, too. There are some times when I'm not enough for me. This is really important. There are times when I am not enough for me. When myself is so overwhelming me with things that are not true, with lies and with deception, that I am not powerful, strong enough to withstand myself. My voice isn't loud enough to shout down myself. And that is why I need you. And that is why you need me. I don't need you. And this, I, I tell you, this is a gospel kind of culture that I so long for the spirit of Jesus to continue to build among us. It's here. But we need more of it. I don't need you to tell me what is wrong with me. I know that well enough. What is more? The Holy Spirit knows it far better than both of us put together. What I need from you and what you need from me is reminders of the cross and the goodness of God and the power of God and the purposes of God. You know what I mean? When Paul says to the Colossians and the Ephesians, in effect, speak the truth to one another in love, he is not saying that you're to walk up to me. Maybe I've used this illustration before. You're not to walk up to me and tell me I dress funny and I'm ugly. I know that about myself. That's not speaking the truth in love. That may be telling me something that's truthful. Maybe it's something that I need to hear. But what I need to hear from you when I am powerless to speak it to myself What I need to hear from you is the kind of thing that Habakkuk is speaking to himself in this passage. 
I need you to tell me the truth about God. I need you to tell me the truth about the gospel. I need you to tell me the truth about the purposes of God. Because sometimes my voice shouts so loudly that it overwhelms me and I'm crushed. And I need you in my life and you need me in your life to speak these precious, comforting, encouraging things. The first thing Habakkuk does is that he stops and he takes a step back and he begins to speak to himself and frankly to anybody else who might be around who's willing to listen. And what does he do when he speaks? Here's the second thing. He reminds himself about God. He remembers God. He remembers what God is like. Okay? Listen to the words that he uses. Are you not from everlasting? Right? He's got this conversation going on. He sees the Babylonians. He's got this one voice whispering in his ear. But as that voice whispers in his ear, he's speaking to God. He lifts his voice to God and says, Are you not from everlasting? Are you not, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? What is it to be everlasting? Well, you need to understand that it means more than just duration, okay? It means more than just duration. In either direction. I mean, you're going to live forever, okay? All of you here are going to live forever. Going forward. All of you will live either forever in a condition of blessedness or in a condition of curse. And that all depends on how you respond to Christ who is deliverance from curse and the doorway into eternal, everlasting blessedness. That's true for you and me and all six billion plus people on this planet. Everybody is going to live everlastingly in that direction. But there is only one being who is everlasting in both directions, and that is God. And what everlastingness means is that while you are contingent and you depend upon things outside of yourself in order to exist, you need food, it's outside you. You need water, it's outside of you. You need oxygen, it's outside of you. All of those things are provided for you by something or someone else. God is the only one who is everlasting, who has power in and of himself to exist, to be. You are contingent. He is not. You are dependent. He is not. That's what this means. When Habakkuk cries out and says, you are the everlasting one, he's affirming a whole package of things about the very being and character of God. Not just duration, but power. Power sufficient within himself for himself as infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth to exist. There's a whole lot packed into that word, everlasting. You are the everlasting one. You are from everlasting to everlasting. You are the ancient of days. See, he's reminding himself. He's reminding himself in that word 
that these Babylonian hordes are like spit in the ocean. That's what Isaiah 40 says. All of the nations are like a drop in a bucket. The Babylonian hordes are not everlasting. They may look powerful. They may look scary. They may look overwhelming. But they are spit in the ocean. You spit in the ocean and it disappears. They are of no final ultimate consequence and significance because you are everlasting. And then he says, he uses this personal name, and I, I you know, you got to go back two or three weeks to unpack that, but that personal name, Lord, is God's covenant name. I suggested to you a couple of weeks ago that Lord is to the Old Testament what our Father is to the New Testament. It comes from a verb, the, the name does, the word to be. That's fine. But it's the name that God uses when he speaks tenderly to his people. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. God's covenant name. It's like saying our father. And Martin Luther, if you've heard this before, forgive me. Martin Luther said I could understand the whole of Christianity if I could understand the first two words of the Lord's prayer. Our father. Because what's in that? Well, relationship, the kind of thing we read about in Psalm 103. Tenderness, affection, a father's concern for his weak and frail children. Oh, Lord. That's what he's saying. He's calling to mind, having called to mind the basic being and character and attributes of God. He's brought it now down to the personal level, to the level of God's covenant relationship to his people, that God delights in his people, takes pleasure in his people, and remembers his people. But then look at what he does, and this is really striking. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God? My Holy One. I'm not sure about this. I, I, I tried to get an answer with sort of the limited amount of time that one has at one's disposal. I couldn't read the whole of the Old Testament this last week. So I'm not sure about this. But I checked concordances. I cross-referenced. And I believe that while God is referred to repeatedly through the Old Testament as the Holy One of Israel, which conjures up these visions of Isaiah 6 and God seated in splendor and shrouded in smoke with the angels surrounding his throne crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of your glory, the vision of which struck Isaiah dumb and broke him and humbled him. That's what's conjured up by this phrase, the Holy One of Israel. This is the only place in the whole of the Old Testament, to my knowledge, where the Holy One of Israel is referred to as the personal possession of a particular person. My Holy One. You belong to me, and I belong to you. I'm telling you, it is a powerful image that Habakkuk, in the midst of his distress would believe, would feel, would sense 
that God being who he is as the everlasting one, as the Lord who makes covenant and keeps covenant, that Habakkuk would see that God so personally as to exclude all other human beings from his view and say, you are mine, you belong to me, my holy one. That's the other conversation, part of the conversation that's going on in his head. Do you know that? I mean, let's, let me just, I'd love to just stop everything for five or ten minutes and have you reflect on that and hope and pray that everybody in this room could walk out of this room this morning knowing in your heart of hearts, at the core of your being, that the Holy One of Israel is your God, yours personally, the one true God to whom you may appeal before whom you may be honest and know that you will not be sent away, but you will in fact be gathered up in the embrace, in the strong arms of a tender loving father. That's what Habakkuk does here. Do you know that? Look, if you know that, no matter what is going on around you, you are safe. You are safe. So he remembers who God is and he remembers who he is in relationship to God. And then he remembers God's purpose. I, you know, I am so stinking fortunate I get to sit with four little words all day, day after day, trying to figure out what they mean. These four words, we shall not die. Now, what does he mean when he says that? He's just heard from God, and clearly he believes that what God says is true because verses 13 through 17 are his own struggle with the fulfillment of what God has said. These Babylonians are going to march across the land, and people are going to die. And Habakkuk has no promise or guarantee that he might not be one of them. He doesn't say, I will not die. He doesn't say you will not die. He says we will not die. What is he saying? Here's what he's saying. Habakkuk is calling to mind the purpose of God. The purpose of God established in the first moments after the fall when you were plunged with this whole world into a condition what the Heidelberg Catechism wonderfully calls sadness. This sad world. You were plunged into a condition of brokenness, sin, fallenness, sadness. And in those first moments after the fall, God made the first promise, the seminal promise, the promise that ties everything together in the whole of Scripture. And that is what Habakkuk is reminding himself of. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, God promised that he would send a warrior king. And that warrior king 
would destroy the evil one and eradicate evil from the face of the earth and from the whole of the cosmos. And that promise that was made in Genesis 3 was enlarged upon in Genesis 12 when God promised to Abraham that in his seed all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Paul understands Quick Bible study here. Paul understands in Galatians 3 that the seed referred to in Genesis 12 is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. First promised in Genesis 3. Promised to the nations in Genesis 12. And where would that Messiah come from? If you read Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10, you will know that that promised warrior king, the seed of Abraham, would come from the tribe of Judah. The warrior king, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. And to him, shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Habakkuk is reminding himself of the purpose of God to send a warrior king who will destroy all evil, destroy the evil one, and that warrior king must come from Judah. And where is Habakkuk? In Judah. As a prophet to Judah. And because God keeps promises that he makes, while he, Habakkuk, may die, While members of his family may die, Judah will not die. Because God will preserve Judah and keep Judah until the warrior king comes to fulfill what is promised of him. The destruction of the evil one and the eradication of evil. What's he doing? He's preaching the gospel to himself. He's telling himself the gospel. The king will come. The warrior will come. The Babylonians are nothing before the power of the warrior king who will crush the head of the serpent and eradicate all evil. So what does he do? He stops. He stops. He takes a step back. He takes himself in hand. And rather than listening to himself, he begins to speak to himself and he reminds himself, secondly, who God is. And then thirdly, he reminds himself of the unalterable purpose of Almighty God to bring the Redeemer who is Jesus Christ. You're in a much better position, a much better place than Habakkuk was. He looked that way at it. He couldn't see it. You look back. The king has come. The back of the evil one has been broken and the warrior king is today securing the obedience of the nations. You're the nations. And so Habakkuk then does this fourth thing. Verse 1 of chapter 2. He watches. I don't know this for sure. I'm I'm just not sure. I don't know. But I have the sense that as these two voices are spinning around in his head, 
The voice of reason. The voice of reason. By the grace of God. By the power of God's spirit. The voice of reason. Begins to win the day. And as Habakkuk, Habakkuk's heart is encouraged. He remembers who God is. He remembers God's ultimate purpose. His only response is to say, I'm going to get up in a watchtower and I'm going to watch. I'm going to watch. It's watch, you see. I'm going to watch. I'll take my stand at my watch post. I will station myself on the tower and I will look out to see what he will say to me. He now is expecting the resolution of his difficulty. He's looking now with hopefulness. The issues are still there. But he gets himself up to a place where he can watch as he waits upon the Lord and waits for the Lord. He anticipates the resolution of this whole thing. So what do you do in the midst of your struggle, your perplexities, your confusions? They're there. I know they're there. I know they plague you. I know they're like demons that come out of the closet at night and haunt you and wake you up and terrify you. What do you do? And by the way, if they're not there, they're coming. They're coming. In some form or fashion, they're coming. What will you do? What will you do when the harsh, brutal, terrifying abnormalities of life in this sin-plagued world fall upon you. Here's what Habakkuk does. Stop, take a step back. Remind yourself of what is true about the God who is at home in the universe he has made, who knows, who has power, and who cares. And remind yourself of his purpose that the day is coming when everything that plagues you, that troubles you, that makes assaults upon your dignity, your person, your very existence, your well-being, all of it, because of Christ, is going to be eradicated. There is a great day coming. Remind yourself of that. And then get yourself up under your watchtower and look for it because it's coming. The resolution is coming. <laughs> and anybody who's got a gospel heart beating in his soul or her soul would say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, bring it now. And the only reason he isn't, the only reason he doesn't bring it right now is because there's still somebody out there he needs to gather up into his arms. And so we wait until he is finished gathering for the final resolution and end to all of this trouble. It's coming. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that Judah did not die. Thank you that the warrior king has come. Thank you that we can now watch and wait 
for the final resolution of all things in Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I ask you, Lord, I ask you that you would show mercy to us all. Encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the weak. Encourage the despairing. Encourage the hopeless. Draw near to them and stir them up. And, O oh Lord, if there are any in this room who have no clue what it is we're talking about, O oh Lord, who have no certainty about this hope, would you minister to them? Would you open their hearts? Would you draw them to yourself into that strong and tender embrace? And then, O oh Lord, impart to them the joy, the joy that comes with knowing this hope, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.